and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Me, Me, You, You. We spend our weeks talking to people all around the world about topics, themes, and conversations that make you feel less alone. It became apparent to me that there are so many parents out there that have special children, gifted children, just unbelievable children of all types and forms and in all parts of the world. And that so often we find that parenting journey quite a lonely one. And we spend a lot of time thinking, is it just me? Is it just my children? Is this just how I feel? And my guest today is here to talk about her experience as a mum to some very special children. She's going to talk from a professional point of view, from a motherhood point of view, and most importantly, to share her experience so that you can empathise, you can lean in, and you can feel less alone. So before we kick off, I want to just start by mentioning that this is an anonymous podcast and that your identity will remain private unless you choose to reveal it. Is that okay for you, my guest today? That is just fine. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us and coming here to share your parenting journey, your motherhood journey. I know it's been a, a, a journey of teen years now, right? Your children are growing. There's been lots of, of parts of learning and growth in that time. And I'd love to hear sort of about where it all began. So tell us a little bit about, about your children, about their ages and, and who they are, and just where this story starts for you. Sure. Um... So thanks for having me. It's it's great. I mean, uh, get to talk about my kids. They are, they're, what a sweet thing to get to talk about. So I have three kids, uh, two of which are neurodiverse. I like to call them wonderfully wired. And my eldest daughter is 16 now. Gosh, I'm, I'm, that went very fast. Um, uh, my son is 14. And then I have a youngest daughter who's 12. So my eldest daughter is um, an extraordinarily sensitive, soak up an entire room and everybody's feelings in it, a fast brain. So what, what we'd call um, gifted and intense, although I'm sure we'll talk about how gifted is just somebody stuck it to some parents by calling it gifted. <laughs> But then, uh, and then I have a son who's 14 and he is um, dyslexic and also what is called twice exceptional when there's um, uh, learning challenges like dyslexia uh, as well as giftedness in specific areas, which just causes super confusion for any brain. And then my 12-year-old daughter is, she's just wonderful. She told me yesterday that she actually did my quiz on my site. And it confirmed that she isn't wonderfully wired. She's just wonderful. So, so that's our story with her. Oh, I, I, I love that introduction. And I love what you 
the term you use there with your son, did you say exceptionally? What did you, I, I missed the phrase, but some, what did you say? You said he's dyslexic and? So it's called twice exceptional. So they call them 2E kids, which means that you have giftedness in certain areas and then definite learning challenges and others, you know, and, and our schools do so well sometimes <laughs> in helping with challenges or perhaps extending, you know, giftedness. But it's when a kid falls in both that they're sort of ex especially lost in a school system. So let's start talking about your son a little bit then and talking about this idea of getting lost. I'd, I'd love to hear his journey. How, how lost is he? But of course, I really want our listeners to be able to understand through your eyes. So what that's like for you as a mother as well. Oh, yeah. So he, he's an exceptional kiddo. Um, I mean, I'm obviously completely biased. You know, he, he was a super easy baby, easy toddler. In fact, after my eldest had been quite a challenging little sausage, I thought I had like arrived. I thought that I had mastered parenting, you know, in an exceptional way. <laughs> Uh, when he came along, because he was just so easy, just wanted cuddles and food and it was all that was good. And then when he was a toddler, and especially into sort of um, kindergarten and those preschool years, um, you, you know, things wouldn't stick for him. And um, especially kind of unrelated lists of, of facts, you know, cold sort of abstract facts, like, you know, months of the year and colors and names of uncle what's his name and auntie so-and-so and um and you know, th things that we thought and i think this is where it comes in is that we we measure ourselves in parenting often by the milestones we're told to measure ourselves by and, and measure our kids by and i am a researcher heart and soul and so i i i, I read probably too much at the time which, you know, if there is such a thing, because you can be so overwhelmed by information and milestones and then suddenly kind of go, is, is everything okay if we're not meeting, you know, if we don't know our colors by three or do the months of the year by four or, you know, whatever um, external things we put on to ourselves. So he, he went into, actually towards the end of his kindergarten years and partly motivated by him. I live in a very... Um, traditional school environment the part of of Africa where I am in a school is very valued but still very focused on rote learning and crossing t's and dotting i's and memorizing and spelling well and writing well and it was clear that he wasn't going to fit into a system like that easily and nor was I sure he should and so I actually started homeschooling him and um, and the girls but actually my youngest went to preschool and we, I homeschooled the older two with my amazing mum-in-law who had been a conventional teacher for 40 years in schools. And then, um, and this is cool, Mimi, I actually, I went for a run and I remember this so clearly and had a podcast in my ears and it was talk, it was an expert on dyslexia talking about the gifts of dyslexia. So, you know, before you, before you know what's different about your kid, you don't even know that you want a label. And then what was so extraordinary about this exposure is it wasn't telling me about the challenges. I knew the challenges, but it was talking about the extraordinary gifts that go with a profile. At that stage, I didn't even know that learning, that neurodiversity and wonderfully wi wonderful wiring comes with gifts and weaknesses. And I just, I mean, you just see the weaknesses and you worry and you kind of think, what have I, 
done wrong as a parent and how are we not winning on this one? Um, and then, I mean, I remember stopping mid-run and bawling my eyes out because somebody was saying, sure, we're not remembering unrelated facts, but that's because we have a strength in story memory, episodic memory that's much more emotive and matters, and, and that's a trait of weakness. Uh, or, sure, we're reversing letters, but that's because this brain is so good at rotating things three-dimensionally in space. and. Uh, I mean, this is, it was such a special moment for me because getting to be introduced to my son's profile, not from a perspective of he's never going to make it in the system, but gosh, look at these gifts. Wouldn't they be worth offering? What a, a phenomenal moment that, that must have been. I want to just mention a, a little bit more there around, you know, reframing weaknesses. I love what you just said about, you know, sure, we we get our letters backwards, but that's because we're we're able to sort of see things in 3D and, and we can, yeah. you know, change things around. I want to ask a, a sort of frank question. Is that just something that people are saying to try and make us feel better as parents? Or is there evidence? You know, you mentioned you're a researcher that, that these brains really do do different things in different ways. Wow, absolutely. I mean, the evidence actually, you know, it frustrates me and this is why I do the work is that it takes so long to come into the common understanding and education, especially is a slow boat to turn. But the research is extensive that often, and you know, I wish schools would teach all kids that they're a package deal of strengths and weaknesses. We have, we have school systems where we kind of say these kids are smart and these are not, whereas I wish we could say how are you smart? And looking, for example, at the dyslexic brain, there are one, let me get technical for you for a second, the connection. So if you can imagine little telephone wires in the brain connecting the neurons when a synapses are firing and ideas are formulated. Well, if we watch a dyslexic brain or we watch a, a neurotypical brain, the connections are often between close little pylons of neurons, more logic, obvious connections, whereas the dyslexic brain's connections fire sort of over large areas of the brain's surface. So coming up with really unlikely connections. Now, that's not good when you're supposed to give the most right answer in a multiple choice question, especially if you have to do it quickly, but it's a huge advantage for looking at a thing with novelty when everybody else can't see how to solve a problem because you're making such unlikely connections. And that's just one example. There are many more. I won't go too much into kind of brain science, but it is super exciting to see actually the way you can't, I always say you can't be like a wing in a rugby team and a forward. And we wouldn't say to a wing, gosh, I wish you were big and strong and s slow, you know, because, because we want them to be small and fast. And, but we don't think of brains that way, but the, the research is just extensive to show that actually neurodiversity is just trade-offs. There are extraordinary strengths that you have to pay for with some weaknesses. That's an unbelievable, unbelievable way of saying it. And yet earlier you did mention, I have a son who is lost in the school center, in the school center, in the school system. So, you know, do you find that this understanding of strengths and weaknesses is what's holding him back, as it were, or creating complexity for him? So it's such a great question. I think the, you know, disability is a funny thing. So I have my back up when people talk about disability in terms of learning differences, because they aren't in, by nature, a disability. 
but disability is caused, right? So if I have a friend in a wheelchair, if there is no ramp, the disability is caused in terms of its access. And I wear glasses. If I don't have my glasses, uh, there's a disability caused. But And unfortunately, the way the school system is so slow to change, um, uh, my son often daily finds himself being tested on the things that are innate challenges and not the things that are his innate strengths. So that means all day long, he has to sort of find a way to function within his weakness. And you and I know if I work on my weaknesses, I can get them better. And, you know, we work very hard on having a growth mindset. We can always get stronger. But when I work on my strengths, I, I can I can tenfold increase them every time I work on them. But the disadvantage these kids have been given is that most of every day is is spent working on their weaknesses. And and the good schools try to give extra learning support and learning support is often remedial. And that's kind and necessary, but it also becomes something by which he's now 14 and earlier this year, I'm not sure last is the right word for now, but certainly February this year, lost would have been the right word because now we're not just talking about disability created by a lack of access to thriving, but also the the things you start telling yourself. You know, I had a boy saying, yeah, maybe mom made all this up. Maybe I'm not smart, you know. Uh, maybe she just thinks that because she's my mother. Um, yeah. But really, all the results around me show that actually the things that kids around me seem to find ridiculously easy just give me such a headache. So maybe I'm just dumb. And then what's the point of putting in effort if you don't reap good things when you sow? And there, I think, a crisis comes for our kids, not in their, in their actual makeup, not in their actual brains, but in the, you know, just in, the, in that message. Because then once we lose kids, you know, um, once kids start believing what isn't true about themselves, to try and recover that self-image and grow those strengths and go back to a growth mindset is, is almost impossible. So how, as a mum, does that make you feel? Well, I mean, look, it, it is just rotten. And at, in February, when I sort of what called it to the head, which is like every mum's happy place, right? Into the head's office and and sat down and he he was telling me how much my son was struggling. And I, you know, everything I know, maybe everything I study and research and know about brain differences and cognitive advantages, I still wanted the earth to swallow me. I mean, he said, look, I just don't see how we're going to get him through the system. We've not given up on him, but I don't want to promise. I don't know how he's going to man manage conventional school. We can get 99.9% .9 of people through school, but I'm not sure about your son. And I mean, these, like, this is it's the stuff big, where you're like, he's a little, oh, sorry, sorry, say again. I said, there's a big statements to say to a mum. They're massive statements. And, you know, in that moment, I want to say, first of all, your statistics are completely wrong. About 30% of every classroom is neurodiverse. I mean, if you had 30% of your listeners not being served by your show, you'd be in trouble as a business, right? I mean, 30% is a massive number. And so to make it the 0.1%, and I mean, I, I think 
I think an extremely large percentage of people are being told your son is one of the few we can't help, which is just, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so that's what I wanted to say. But mostly I had to sort of rein in emotions and speaking at, at a point like that is just hard, isn't it? When you're like, okay, do not cry. <laughs> because because here I am as a person who's an advocate for near, near difference, who believes in the strengths, who, who has a podcast about it. And yet in that moment, I'm thinking, did I make all this up? Because when you when you have it when you're in a system that speaks a different story to what you're telling your family, you know it takes us like a a rather stubborn kind of strength to hold or faith to hold on to what you're choosing to believe. Mm. And now again, potentially a, a controversial question, but in, in your opinion, and of course it's only your your family, your son, you know your context. But at what point? Do we take them out of school? You know, for other parents that are listening that perhaps have had a similar thing where the teacher's saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do with your child. At what point do we stop? And I'm going to use the word forcing. I'm not insinuating that you are forcing your child to do anything. But as a system, as a society, at what point are we forcing them through a system that even their teachers are telling them, you know, they don't fit? And again, this is not necessarily about your son, but as someone who who speaks to lots of people in this space, where's the line for those parents? So I, you know, that it's it's a it's a brilliant question. It's a big question. I think it's very specific to families and to the context you're in and the options available in those schools. So, you know, I think with especially dyslexia, but any other kind of language-based learning difference, we, we really do need a hands-on remedial approach as soon as possible. You know, and and so there is definitely in a primary school a need for extra help with things and different ways of teaching. So I, I, t- I brought my kids home in, in primary school. There were other reasons for it. Like I said, in terms of the, our conventional system, we'd kind of written ourselves out the script a bit, but like my son was a big reason for it because he, you know, he wasn't being served in that system. Now there are amazing schools that do serve. And I think in primary school, the need, the big need is a remedial one. Something happens around 12 or 13, in my opinion, that becomes a bigger question, just not just am I getting the extra support need I um, I need, but what is the message my kid's getting? And, and can he hold on to a self-image and a belief of his strengths in the context of school? So I did go down in um, February when, when we, we sort of reached this crisis point. I say down because my, my son goes to a boarding school and I, you know, on, a, on another side of a border. So I actually took off three months of kind of our daily lives and, and went and worked with him daily because that support wasn't there. But one of the things I sort of said to him rather impassionately on the hike, and we all sort of stopped and had a, a tear in our eye, was that I am not here to make you like the other kids. I'm not here to make you fit in a system that should have already changed long ago and desperately needs changed for for a large percentage of the class. And so I am here if you want to do conventional school. If you don't, there's a hundred other options and they're not always immediately available. And of course, Mimi, I live a privileged life in which I am able to homeschool or find other options that's not accessible to to most people 
but but it was so important to me that he understands that if he wants to be in that school in that way, and there are many other things in the school that he absolutely adores, then we can find the skills for him to jump through the hoops while the hoops are still necessary to give him access to later education or later options. But we are not here to make him like the other kids. Does that make sense in terms of a response? It makes a phenomenal, yeah, it makes phenomenal sense. I think, you know, well done to you as a mum to be able to have that conversation. I think for many of us, like you said earlier, the emotion, the, you know, bigness of this doesn't always enable us as parents to be able to have those those conversations. But in in a moment, I want to move on to to your daughter and talk about that different reality. But before we do, I just want to sort of close that off. So I'm assuming he said he he did want to stay because you mentioned that was February. We're now obviously at the end of the school year. So how has you being there helped him? And do you think that's just because, of course, you had homeschooled, you clearly know how to teach. But did it help him? He's still there. He's going for another year. Did you see progress since February? So it's a great question. When I said about primary school, I think the greatest need is a remedial one. I think it changes in high school. I, and I and this is something I kind of got to experience face to face with with him because I when I went down, I thought I was going to tutor him on content. I thought I was going to have to become a pro in grade nine accounting or whatever. Shoot me now. But <laughs> but what I very quickly realized is that that wouldn't help him in the long run. And that actually the kind of coaching need that he has as a 14-year-old dyslexic student was um, more on executive functioning. So things like organizing himself, planning his days, knowing which test is where, you know, managing his time. And actually most wonderfully wired kids really need help. I think most 14-year-old boys do, but (laughs) even more so. Um, There was such a need for coaching. And in that coaching, also to talk about how is your brain different? How does the classroom teach that actually doesn't work for how your brain's different? And what could you do to play the game on your terms if you, you like to stay? And he definitely wants to be there. You know, home homeschooling in the primary years for us was about magic and wonder and reading Harry Potter on the trampoline. And we had the time of our lives. But the moment we had 12, 13-year-olds, there was definitely in my family a need for a bit more risk and adventure that your mum in her pajamas can't offer. And that's fine. You know, and we've had this conversation. We could find our way through online programs and all sorts of things to get the education needed. But in terms of getting the outdoor experience and the and the socialization and the peers, all that that he wants, you know, that's where he wants to be. So we've spent a lot of time on that kind of coaching. And just on trying to to give him a sense of control again, because I think a sense of autonomy for a teenager especially is is crazy necessary for all teenagers. And I think it's the thing that quickly goes out the window for different learners because they just don't feel able to control the outcome of things. And so we sort of sacrificed a thing or two on the altar of that, just said, okay, let's just fail accounting. Let's go for it. Why not? You know, just for the sake of saying, actually, I can choose what I put my effort and my time in. We also advocated for a, for a bunch of accommodations. He has a scribe and a reader and his exams. And, and we had a couple of little wins. And so there's been a change in, in, in confidence, I think. Look, I don't know. 
how this story ends, Mimi, because I hate that I could be all there or not there at all. And I wish that there was more scaffolding or a midline and there just still isn't the systems like that available in even great schools. And so, so I mean, you know, I guess watch the space, but I, I think first choice is him making it in, in the place he wants to be in. And he, you, you mentioned the socializing and, and, you know, being out of the home. Does this challenge in his life, so having the scribe, having people help him write and read, obviously having his mum come down, has that impacted his relationships? Because we all know that teenagers are not always the kindest to each other. Sure. You know what's the funniest thing? When I was there, just realizing that every teenager, whether they're neurodiverse or not, thinks that all the other teenagers are having life so easy. <laughs> I'm like, well, actually, no. Um, and so, you know, there was certainly a perception in his mind that everybody else is sort of having it easy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think part of how we help our kids is also kind of taking a moment to sort of grieve what is so that we can lean into um, what, you know, what is good about our story. And we kind of did have a little tantrum in the beginning and I let him have a tantrum. We had a tantrum and like, it's unfair. I have to work 10 times harder. My mom has to come to school. It's unfair. And then to be able to say, yes, but in the long run, this is an advantage if you could cope with a part of it's unfair. Sorry, this is not completely answering the social question, but just to say that we can just have our tantrum and say it's rotten. And then at the end of it, walk out with an extra advantage. And that's that we had to, we learned how to work because not many people learn how to work at school. Mm. He had struggled socially before I came. I think the complete overwhelm of high school and of all the executive functioning challenges wasn't helping street cred and, and how one looks and, you know, I think now he is bit by bit finding more kindred spirits and, you know, that's so hard in high school, but to find people that are also quirky, that are also different thinkers. Um, and, and you know, one of the things that happened while we were there is that with this confidence getting better, a stutter faded and, you know, we got his braces off and the shoulders went broad, whatever those little things are that boost that. So we're certainly not out of the woods for being a different thinker, but it's my hope that when one can believe that you have something really good to offer, that you can be a little bit tougher about the negative feedback that comes back at you. Mm. Uh, let, let's let's talk about being a teenage girl because uh, everything you just said, you know, 14-year-old boys are probably quite tame compared to 16-year-old girls. So you mentioned her at the very beginning. You said she's a highly sensitive, highly aware young lady. What's her reality in the in the school system and, and your relationship with her? How's that? Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll tell you the, the quick kind of uh, background is that when when she was around 11, we'd kind of, my sweet mum and Lord passed away and we had thought, okay, maybe our homeschool season is over and we'd back, gone back into a conventional school. And she was, she was sort of knocking it out the park academically, but really struggling, uh, you know, every morning being pale and, and nauseous. And you could tell, you know, she was not in great space and we would do all these other assessments, everything living in Africa from Bulhazia through oh, glandular fever, thinking what is making this girl physically struggle, you know, eventually thought maybe we need to get um, to a psychologist. 
because maybe in the grief of losing her special Google, like maybe that was what we were going on. We ended up in his rooms. He saw us, he saw there, her, and then he called back us back in. And honestly, maybe it was again, like being in that headmaster's office. I was ready for him to tell me how many of um, his mommy, her mommy and daddy issues were ruining her life. And he said, I assure you are aware that your daughter is gifted. At which point we both did one of those cartoon double takes. Like, what? 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 <laughs> and he started talking about um, giftedness as a brain difference, as a combination of a brain that can, yes, see a math question um, quickly and to an incredible complexity and solve it easily, but that same brain who that takes every thought, every emotion, every reaction and multiplies that by 10, climbs sort of every ladder of inference, assumes when mom's looking funny at dad that we'll get divorced by the end of the week, that kind of really intense reactions to the world. I had no idea these things were late. And, you know, when we hear of giftedness, we all think of protégés going to university at 13 or um, I don't know, kids that never have to work another day or, you know, Mike from Suits memorizing pages of books. And we, But what we don't know is that the word is an unfortunate thing because it isn't always a gift. It's a difference in thinking. And where a smart kid gets the right answer every time and feels proud of himself, um, my gifted kid gets the right answer but then totally questions herself and her effort and or she asks questions of the questions and not others to answer them and so there's an intensity and a need for both emotional and social support that we don't realize that gifted kids have we all just kind of think they have a easy breeze mm. so before that meeting we you know mm. when she was just I, again i just want the the audience to fully understand she's a very competent very capable very i'm going to put in quotations normal young right that you as i said you you did double take you didn't know she had any giftedness until she began to physically look unwell yes yeah and you know this is often the story with gifted kids is that they get misdiagnosed and they might get misdiagnosed with depression or anxiety or adhd or all sorts of kind of sensitivities that they have because all their senses emotions intellect just tend to be on high alert and on overdrive. And physically, that's true for them too. And so, you know, a handful kind of get spotted early and, and then I think pushed and, and to, to be honest, I think milked in school systems to, to make everybody look good with their great results. But in the meantime, they also have something very typical in gifted kids is something called asynchronous development. And, and that means that they can be many ages at once. So you, you can have a conversation with her in which she will have insight and wisdom like of a 40-year-old. And then the next minute, she could have a meltdown similar to a very young child when she feels emotionally overwrought or sen in a sensory overwrought. So yes, I did a double take because I couldn't, I couldn't even see the relevance. But having done lots of research post that, I see so many things even in her young years that may have been called a strong-willed child or, 
you know, that I see now actually was with this deeply empathetic little person that would absorb all the emotions in a room, in the room. And your, your question earlier about being a teenager, I mean, that's when things start also going quite wrong because if you're a teenager that knows how everybody else in the room thinks about you and about each other, and you don't have the, the calluses to kind of shield yourself from it yet, then that actually causes a lot of, a lot of heartache and a lot of difficulty emotionally. And for my daughter, that, you know, that was a, a fast track to, to severe anxiety and and some really broken images about her body and about food. And, you know, it, it was just a fast track for, you know, because it felt to me, I always say that she was walking around the world like a tortoise without a shell on because there wasn't the, the, the means of, of shielding herself from all these things. Now, that is a gift, but it's also not a gift, right? Mm. Well, I mean, absolutely. It's a gift because we, you know, we're on a show that talks so much about empathy and what you're explaining is this young woman who has so much innate empathy that on the one hand, she can see and feel and understand all kinds of things well beyond her years. But on the other, she's too young to be able to handle that. And that can, of course, like you said, make her feel sort of that, like that shoulder turtle. So how, how do you go about helping them? You know, I'm sure there's lots of people listening that have teenage children, whether they do have a, a gift or not, how do you go about, you know, putting that shell back on? Oof. Yeah. You know, I think that understanding goes a far way. I think that, that a commitment to help gifted kids, both in developing their gift and in offering emotional and social support is really our starting point. Because I think often we, our response tends to lean into one of those extremes more than the other like I say you know um, lots of music so there's different ways in which you can be gifted musically academically interpersonally there's different sort of aspects but often kids are kind of like I say milked <laughs> that's a that's a bit cynical but people enjoy and the kids enjoy the success and achievement that comes from their gift but often those kids are not offered the help with being socially so young. I think of a, of a close friend of my daughter's who is also gifted and intense and where my daughter will put herself out in social situations all the time and really kind of putting herself in the firing line of being overwhelmed, her friend with withdraws from social situations and often, you know, will be on camp and kind of not join the line for lunch because of the complete anxiety that comes with it. And to understand that these kids are, are really vulnerable in this way, Mimi, that they really do need social and emotional support. They need good, um, informed counseling by people who understand neurodiversity and understand giftedness. And, and they need to, I mean, I think for me and our family, we always felt that we have to learn the skills of being able to, to grow, to have some boundaries, to know when you need to remove yourself from situations, all those things I felt we needed to do early. And if that meant that she wasn't flying in her gifts and she wasn't getting straight A's, I don't care for now. <laughs> like at some point it'll give her a great gift of joy to thrive in, in the things that really make her come alive. But I think that this the support these kids need young to advocate for themselves, to understand how to kind of 
make their sensory worlds not so loud. I think all those, the, that kind of support is, is, is super needed. We have, um, we have a bit of language that we use thanks to this expert called Dr. Mona Della Hook, who talks about a body budget. And to understand, I talk about our body account. Like what are the things that add to your account? And, and what are the things that withdraw? And how can you constantly assess where you're at? And what do you need when you need to remove yourself? I and mean, these are skills you and I want to teach our adult friends or want to learn as adults, you know? So to say, like you say, it's a great gift to have that much empathy, but when it actually always puts you in a place of extreme anxiety for the, you know, the, the difficult things that the people around you are carrying, then what does looking after your body account look like for you? And we start introducing that kind of vocabulary. I mean, it's certainly been what sounds like a, a long learning journey for all of you. I want to end by talking about you as a mum, you know, within the capacity that you're comfortable to do so, because I, I think I can speak on, on behalf of most mums that, you know, when we have our babies, we, we're not prepared in, in most ways, to be honest. Yeah. But I suspect, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's fair to say that every time these new challenges come up to, to any level in life, we're never prepared, right? You've mentioned a few yeah. times that you've gone home and you've researched and you've spoken to therapists and counselors. And so there's been a long journey. As a woman, as a mum, how has all of this impacted you as a person in your life, in your work? Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, you know, um, I think as a, as a, it's funny because in my personal life, nobody would describe me as a perfectionist. Like, especially not my mom. <laughs> no, nobody would sort of look at, at my home or, or my desk and say, oh, sure, you know, everything needs to be perfect. But I think in terms of the relationships that matter the most to me, you know, I would pour all of it. Uh, and, and, you know, as a mom, like, you know, if there's one place where I will not find the bottom of how much I can pour, it would be in terms of my kids. And, you know, that's a sort of unashamed thing. But as an adult, like also, I've always been very aware that I need to not define myself by the, my kids for their sake and for the sake of not, not developing codependence, but also for the sake of defining myself as a woman and a professional and a brain and a body and a heart outside of my kids. For me, the, the lines were sometimes blurred because my passion is education because, you know, because like in so many ways, my career was my kids and, and yet to be able to hold lightly to their stories and not take ownership of it is something that I'm extremely intentional about. And honestly, made me often find very hard and um, because a default setting gets me back to feeling if I could control this, I mean, just yesterday. Uh, saying to my husband, you know, I feel like I suddenly have no control. Whereas when I was at the school doing things all day long, it felt like a sweet sense of control. And, uh, you know, both in terms of, of helping my daughter with mood and emotions and um, all that, and we're helping my son academically. And to be able to step away and let them live their lives, you know, I feel is a constant adjustment. But but it's, I kind of always hold on to that Stephen Covey thing of adjusting the course all the time and always intentionally getting it back to 
to what we're trying to aim and not necessarily always judging ourselves in the moment when we lose sight of that, but that over the long term of our story of parenting, we, we know where we want to head. You know, in with wonderful wiring, I, I think parents need, they need a minute of, of like guiltless grief as well. Like this story doesn't look like I thought it would. We're not acing all the things at prize giving or being in this sport or getting to be in every social situation without our five-year-old having a meltdown. The things we thought, you know, and to be able to stop and actually grieve, not grieve the kid, but grieve that our story looks different. And so that we can then say, okay, if our story looks different, what is sweet about our story? And if it comes with sacrifice, yes, but or does it come with in winnings? And I don't. I think if we're not honest about how hard it is, we don't get to lean into how good it is either. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I think that last point is so powerful because we don't have much time to to grieve or to let go of parts of our story that we assumed would be there. And certainly in some of the conversations I've had with people, so often that is what creates the tension between the parent and the child is that the parent is not perhaps ready to totally recognize that things are going to be different, you know? And as you said, balancing what is wonderful about that with perhaps what is a loss in, in a dream that you had as a young mum or, or previous to becoming a mum, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing today. I, again, I said it in the, in the beginning, but one of the reasons I, I want to have these conversations on me, me, you, you is to allow people to feel less alone. Often conversations are anonymous because it allows the sharer, guest, to speak more openly, you know, without fear, without context, all of these types of things. But I know you did mention today that you have a podcast. So would you like to share your your name, your location and your work on the show today? Yeah, sure. I, because I, I would just love to help parents that like me and, you know, that have these kids that just think differently and don't fit in the box because they never even, you know, knew what the box was about. So my, my podcast is called Wonderfully Wired and, um, and I have a membership site. So uh, the podcast, um, I interview experts in the field and I find the most helpful experts on neurodiversity, on anxiety, on behavioral differences, on learning on helping our kids thrive, on supporting them with their struggles, but also really celebrating their strengths because that's the real focus of the podcast. So so my name's Ellie Her, and um, I have a membership also called wonderfullywired.online. And and the, what the site does is it explores then in detail of over the month after the podcast, some of the work that that expert does and how to really practically and clearly apply it in our families and in our schools. I have some teacher training on that as I really do believe our teachers would do well if they knew better. And so I am I'm really for teachers needing to get a very diverse class through gates and dates. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I think that's about, that's about it, Mimi. Well, thank you. And so I do encourage you, if you have found value in this, to go and check out wonderfullywired.online and continue the conversation because I'm conscious that in this 45 minutes, we only touch on the very surface of what it's like to be a wonderfully wired teenager in this case, but also the mother or parents to those children on their journeys, 
you know, balancing school life, emotions and, and growing up and everything that comes with it. So thank you very much for being here today to help us close the gap between between people, between understanding, between, you know, judgment and stereotypes that exist around these types of journeys and for helping all of us understand a little bit more what it's like to be the mum to these wonderful children. So thank you for joining today. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi You You. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi You You Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.